Well, it's great to see everybody here today. What a beautiful day God's given us today. It's uh, one of the things I love about Oklahoma. You know, it's freezing one day and can be beautiful the next. So keeps us uh, keeps us on our toes. But it's always great to be here with God's people. I look forward so much every uh, every Lord's Day to being here with you and uh, fellowshipping with you and worshiping with you and, and opening the Word of God together. Um, I said last week we, we were going to begin a study of Second Peter this morning, and I meant that when I said it, uh, but I want to move that back one week uh, this morning. So if you're visiting here with us, we're going to start a study of the book of Second Peter next week. And I want to bring a special uh, message this morning in light of uh, the news that's kind of been dominating the headlines all week. Um, those of you who've attended Faith Bible Church for some time know that every once in a while, maybe every year or two or three years, I'll kind of break in and do a special message about uh, something that, that's happening in our world today that, that intersects with Bible prophecy. And if you uh, like to know more about these things along, I do a video blog every week called Marking the Times where I kind of give some prophecy updates, a- answer a lot of questions people send in. So uh, you can look at those if you're kind of interested in these updates on a more regular basis. Uh, But we've all been watching and praying this week because uh, really for the second time in six months, uh, the U.S. and Iran really came uh, to the brink of war. And it kind of started last summer when uh, Iran shot down one of our drones and we shot down one of their drones and they had a drone attack against Saudi Arabia, the world's largest oil facility there. Um, Iran attacked some ships in the Persian Gulf. Uh, This whole thing's been called the game of drones that's kind of unfolding over there in that part of the world. But there's been a series of escalations this week, and the world kind of held its collective breath uh, with all that was happening. And I don't want to rehash all of that, because I'm sure a lot of you have seen seen a lot of that on the news. But uh, war was literally averted at the last minute. And uh, because of what's happened over there, um, Iran has backed out of the, uh, really, the Iran nuclear deal. They've kind of taken off all the, the restraints from their nuclear uh, pursuits. Of course, the U.S., we've already backed out of that, and people are saying you know, Iran could have a nuclear breakout in 7 to 11 months if they want to. Now, of course, all of these events are significant geopolitically. They're significant militarily. Uh, we need to pray for our leaders. Uh, we need to pray for people in the Middle East. We need to pray for people in Iran. We need to pray for the families of the, the people that that plane was shot down, the, the Ukrainian airliner. It's a lot of chaos over there. But, it, but in all that's happening, Iran and the U.S., and really, of course, Iran and Israel are still on a collision course. When you've kinda, we've had kind of a temporary pressure relief from the valve, if you will, but uh, the pressure's not gone. It'll build again and, uh, to another crisis. In fact, uh, there was a national opinion poll I just read this week. It was just taken a week ago. 41% of adults in the U.S. consider Iran to be an imminent threat. 71% of Americans, almost three out of four Americans, believe the U.S. will be at war within Iran within the next few years. And 20% of Americans are in favor of a preemptive attack or first strike on Iran's military. So over 25% of uh, people in America would like us to go have some preemptive attack. Now, this week I got a lot of uh, phone calls uh, from some of my friends who are pastors and a lot of emails and texts. And a couple of you even came up after the service last week and asked me some questions. And uh, what's on a lot of people's minds anytime events like this are unfolding in the Middle East is, you know, does this have any prophetic uh, significance? Um, so people have a lot of questions. I assume that many of you do as well. Um, now, I, uh, I believe in what's called signs of the times. I believe there are signs that the Bible says will lead up to the coming of Christ. And one of the reasons I believe in that is they're mentioned in Scripture, but also the events of the end times can't occur in a vacuum. And there has to be a buildup. It's not just like all of a sudden everything's going to come together in one day. There's got to be a buildup or a setting of the stage 
uh, for these events to take place. And I think we can see a lot of the buildup in our, in our world today with globalism. Uh, you have a, a one-world economy almost, really, and, and uh, you can see how the world's coming together globally where one man ultimately will be able to rule it, the Antichrist, as predicted in the Bible. Uh, we see the yearning for peace over there in the Middle East, and, and the Bible says uh, there's going to be a temporary peace coming in the future. Uh, we see world focus on the Middle East. I mean, that's the staging ground for the end times, and the whole world's focused there. Uh, we see apostasy in the church today. Uh, apostasy is a word that means to fall away. Uh, we see a, a greater falling away, I think, both morally and, and doctrinally uh, from the faith in churches today than any time uh, that we've seen in history. So I see these as discernible signs of the times. But I believe the rise of Iran, the regional supremacy, and its hatred for Israel and the U.S. is a key sign of the times. I believe Iran's rise to prominence intersects with Bible prophecy. That's a, a sign of the times in which we live. And so that's going to be our focus uh, here this morning. Now, as I talk about Iran today, I want to make it clear we're not talking about the people of Iran who are trapped there under this dark regime. We're talking about uh, this sinister regime, really, that's leading that country. So I want to make that clear at the outset. A couple other things I want to mention is when we think about signs of the times, um, there, there's a danger people are going to have is where they can begin to see like everything's a sign of the times. Well, when everything becomes a sign of the times, then nothing's a sign of the times, right? People just look at every event that's taking place in the world. So we want to be careful uh, about that. But the second thing I would say about signs of the times that's important is we always want to look at current events through the Bible and not the other way around. A lot of people are out there looking at things happening in the world and then trying to find Bible passages that fit that. Now, we want to look at the Bible first. The Bible is our template. The Bible is kind of like uh, the, the biblical scenario of the end times is like the, the top of the box of a puzzle. And that gives you the picture of what it's ultimately going to look like. And what we see today is kind of the edge and the frame being, uh, being constructed and some of the middle uh, taking place. And as our world today looks more and more like the picture on top of the box, we can believe, I think, that the coming of Christ uh, is near. But you and I want to look at world events through the lens of the Bible. And the biblical entry point for any discussion about Iran or Persia in the end times is Ezekiel 38 and 39. So if you'll open your Bible there with me, I'm sure that's a well-worn place in everyone's Bible. And if you'll turn there to Ezekiel, it's uh, kind of near the middle of your Bible there, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, we're not going to have time this morning to look at all the details in these chapters. I'm just going to look at a few basic things. But let me begin by reading these verses, Ezekiel 38, 1 through 8. And uh, this describes a future battle, often called the Battle of Gog and Magog. Ezekiel 38, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And, thus say, and say, Thus says the Lord God. Now, I just want to pause here for a moment. Seven times in these two chapters, you find the phrase, Thus says the Lord God. And then other times, Declares the Lord God. So what we're reading here this morning, let's not miss this. This is the very word of God himself. Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. And I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws and bring you out. All your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords. 
Persia, Ethiopia, and put with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer with all its troops, Bethel-Garma from the remote parts of the north with all its troops, many peoples with you. Be prepared and prepare yourself, you and all your companies that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you'll be summoned. In the latter years, you'll come into the land that's restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste, but its people were brought out from among the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. Well, so reads God's inspired word. As we come to Ezekiel 38, we're kind of parachuting down here near the end of the book. And so I want to just get our bearings in the book of Ezekiel briefly. Um, Ezekiel is about a, he was a 6th century Jewish prophet, wrote around 570 BC. And the, the world power at that time was Babylon. And so if you look at the first 24 chapters of the book of Ezekiel, it's a prophecy of judgment on Judah. That the Babylonians are going to come and going to take them into captivity. And then in chapters 25 to 32, God announces judgment on the near enemies of Judah. Those nations were going to be engulfed in the Babylonian invasion as well. And then the turning point of the book of Ezekiel is the 33rd chapter. In that chapter, Ezekiel, who's in Babylon, gets news that Jerusalem has been destroyed. It's the darkest day in Israel's history, probably even still to today. The the, the destruction of, of Solomon's temple in the city of Jerusalem. And so from that point on in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel turns from a message of judgment to a message of regathering and restoration and blessing for the Jewish people. And that's where we find uh, our chapters here this morning is in this section of the the end time restoration of the nation of Israel. Now Ezekiel 37, the chapter right before the one I just read, talks about the regathering of the Jewish people to their land. And this is a very powerful apologetic for the Bible because we all know that after 70 AD and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem by the Romans, the Jewish people were scattered to over 70 countries for almost 2,000 years. Their language died, and yet the Bible says in the end they're going to come back to their land. And what we've seen since 1948 is a regathering of the Jewish people uh, to their homeland. Almost over 6 million Jews now live in Israel. Almost 40% of the Jewish population uh, worldwide live there. And so their regathering has been called the miracle on the Mediterranean. As God has done or is doing what he promised to do uh, so long ago. And so after Israel's regathered in chapter 37, chapters 38 and 39 talk about this invasion of Israel in the latter years or the last days. And one of the nations mentioned here as part of this invasion in 38.5 is Persia. Persia became Iran in 1935, became the Islamic Republic of Iran um, in 1979. Now, we're not going to have time this morning to look at everything in these chapters, but I'm going to use the old journalist's outline this morning. I want to look at who's going to be involved in these events when it's going to happen, why it's going to happen, what's going to happen. And then I want to spend some decent time at the end talking about um, how we respond and live in times like these. So let's start with the who question. Who's going to be involved in this? We know that Iran is coming into Israel in the end times because this passage tells us that. And what we see, I think, today is a buildup to that. And in Iran today, again, in the regime that's there, the Mullah regime, they, they hate Israel 
fact, uh, really, you'd say the two things since the Islamic Revolution in Iran is they want to spread their influence and they want to destroy Israel. Those have kind of been the two constants. And, of course, they hate the U.S. because we support Israel. And they're constantly chanting death to Israel, wanting to wipe them off the map. I mean, recently they've said that, you know, Israel's a cancerous tumor that needs to be removed. I mean, you know, it's very, very... Uh, a rough language, obviously. In fact, uh, the, uh, the general that was uh, killed here a couple, uh, last week in the drone strike by uh, the U.S., he was the leader of an elite force in, in Iran. It's called the Quds Force. And the word Quds in Arabic is a word that they use for Jerusalem. So the whole focus is the city of Jerusalem to take that city. Um, the word Quds means holy, and so El Quds is the holy place, uh, the holy city, which they see as the city of Jerusalem. So that's the focus. Now, you see here in this passage, when Persia comes here in verse 5, they're not going to come by themselves. There's, a, a, there's an entire axis of nations that are going to invade Israel in the end time. And as you, you let your eyes look at those verses, there's 10 proper names that are listed there. And the first ones are Gog and Magog. And so this is often called the Battle of Gog and Magog. I mean, it is interesting. In the Quran, they mention Gog and Magog two times. It's called Yajuj and Majuj. Um, they take the story of Ezekiel 38 and 39 and kind of adapt it and change it to fit their own narrative. Because obviously the Quran was written much long after the book of Ezekiel was written. But it mentions here Gog of the land of Magog. Gog is going to be the leader of this invasion. Uh, the word Gog probably has, carries the idea of darkness. Um, that's probably not going to be the person's real name, but it just signifies the, the dark nature of this world ruler who's going to, or this ruler who's going to bring this invasion about. Now, this person, Gog, is not the same as the Antichrist. The Antichrist is going to uh, lead the West. This Gog person is going to lead uh, a northern, kind of eastern, southern confederacy that's going to come against Israel. Now, there's nine names that are listed here, geographical places. Now, if you look on a map today, you won't find Meshach or Tubal or any of these places mentioned. So what we do is we go back and look at, in Ezekiel's day, where were those places and what's the modern counterpart to those or the modern equivalent. And so when you look through here, you see Magog, which is uh, basically Central Asia. It's a land of the ancient Scythians, places like Afghanistan and uh, the old underbelly of the Soviet Union. Um, it mentions Rosh or Rosh. Now, some of your translations may not have the word Rosh in verse 2. Um, the word there just means chief or head, and some translations translate it as an adjective, and some translate it as a proper noun, and I think it's better as a proper noun. And so as a proper noun, it's the word Rosh, and many believe that's a reference to Russia. And it's not just because they sound alike. There's actually um, a lot of other reasons for that. Uh, one thing that's interesting as you read these chapters is three times it says these armies are going to come from the remotest parts of the north. And if you go north from Israel as far as you can go, I mean, without going all the way to the North Pole, but as far as is, is inhabited, you're going to be um, in Russia. And so I think that Russia is going to be a part of this. Uh, there's four nations mentioned here, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Togarma, that are all in modern-day Turkey. And again, if you know anything about the news today, I mean, President Erdogan in Turkey, I mean, he's a, an opponent of Israel. There's a growing opposition there uh, to the nation of Israel. In fact, uh, Turkey's down in Syria now. They're in Iraq. They're even sending troops down to Libya. Speaking of Libya, in verse 5, you have Persia, which is Iran, Ethiopia, which is actually ancient Kush. It's modern-day Sudan, which is an Islamic nation. And then Put is Libya. 
which obviously is in a lot of chaos today. But when you read that list, it's like a, a who's who of Israel's enemies. It looks like it was kind of ripped from uh, today's headlines. And what's interesting to me is, or is really stunning in many ways, is these exact nations are predicted by God to be a part of this 2,500 years ago. And to me, it's a powerful apologetic for the Bible and proves the inspiration of Scripture. A lot of you probably been reading predictions people made for the year 2020 some years ago. One man in 1911, a doctor, predicted that our foot would just be one big toe by the year 2020. That would be some pretty speedy evolution at that pace. But people think we'll be flying around in jet packs or um, living in flying houses. Uh, one man just about 50 years ago predicted in 2020 nobody would work and everybody would be rich. Well, that hadn't happened, right? We know that for sure. But, you know, when you think about it, man's resume for predicting the future is pretty thin. We really don't know anything that's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen to us this afternoon. But God knows the future, and God predicts the future, and it comes to pass exactly as God has stated. And so these nations that are listed here are viable nations today that oppose Israel, that are forming alliances with one another. In fact, at the end of verse 6, it says, many peoples with you, which may carry the idea that this list here isn't inclusive. There's going to be even more nations that will come. So what you have here is a coalition involving Russia and Central Asia, Turkey, Iran, Sudan, Libya, and that's not too difficult to envision today. And again, we see ties growing between these nations. Now, one of the things that, that is startling really in our, our world today is because of the civil war in Syria, both Iran and Russia have a lot of military assets now in Syria right on Israel's northern doorstep. There they are right on the threshold of Israel. We're going to be in Israel, Lord willing, in about six weeks. We're going there with a group from the church. And when we get up there in the Golan Heights area, you look over into Syria and we, we, we talk about uh, these prophecies that God has given. But they're, they're, they're poised right in that area, right on the threshold of Israel. Another complicating factor in all of this, and many of you know this, but um, in Iran and their, their strain of Islam, of Shiite Islam, they have an, an, an apocalyptic ideology that drives them. Uh, they believe that their Mahdi, the 12th Imam, is going to come soon. Uh, and they believe that they can speed up his coming by creating warfare and bloodshed in the world. And so they think they can hotwire the apocalypse, really, if you will. Now, to do that, they have to get rid of the great Satan, which is America, and the little Satan, which is Israel. They also believe the final great battle is going to be in Syria, which also explains why they're there. It explains why ISIS wanted to be in Syria so badly, because they think that's where it's going to all come down ultimately in the, the final great conflagration of the end times. But I just say all that to say a nation with that kind of an apocalyptic ideology is not the kind of people you want to get their hands on a nuclear weapon. So that's, who, that's who's involved in this. Now, when's this going to happen? Notice it says in verse uh, 8, it's in the latter years. This is the latter years of Israel's history. Uh, down in verse 16, it talks about the last days. So this is a, a battle that's going to happen in the latter years or last days of Israel's history. Now, one question that often comes up is, well, how do we explain the mention of like ancient weapons and stuff here? It talks about horses and shields and swords and spears and things like that. How do we explain that in an end time setting? Well, I believe that 
these could be, these are ancient weapons that Ezekiel mentions, but he means for us today the modern counterpart of that. Just like, you know, we're not looking for Rosh and Meshach, we're looking at the modern equivalent of that. He's just giving weapons that they could have understood in that day, but we would look for, again, the modern counterparts of those things. There's some people who believe, though, that when the end times get here, it's going to get so bad, people will actually have reverted to these kinds of things. That's how bad it's going to be. Um, that was Dr. Walvard's view that I studied under at Dallas Seminary. Um, in fact, uh, Albert Einstein said this, I know not with what weapons World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. Now that could certainly be true, and that could be what Ezekiel's describing, but either way, this invasion can't be something that happened in the past because it says it's going to be in the latter years and also, nothing even remotely similar to this has ever happened in Israel's history before. So it has to be future. We also know it has to be when Israel's been regathered to their land. Obviously, the Jewish people can't be attacked in their land if they're not there. So chapter 37 is this precondition for the Jewish people to be present in the land. And there they are today, over 6 million Jewish people living in the land of Israel. Um, it also tells us in verse 12 that Israel is going to be prosperous in the land. They're going to be prospering in their land. And that's certainly true today as well when you go to Israel, a very prosperous place. But it also says twice in this passage that Israel is going to be at rest and they're going to be living securely when this event takes place. And so I think that means this is going to have to happen after the tribulation period begins, after they're living under this treaty with the Antichrist, it's going to bring them a temporary time um, of peace. And of course, what do people want in the Middle East today more than anything else? They want peace between Israel and her neighbors. Now, if you'll put that slide up here for me that I've got, hopefully a picture will speak a thousand words. Um, every prophecy teacher needs a good chart, and so this is a good one here. Um, this is from Tommy Ice and Tim LaHaye's book, Charting the End Times. And you can see over here on the left, this is where we are today. We're in the church age. We're in this time of things are getting ready. It's, it's a buildup. And I believe the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. It can happen at any moment. Um, it, it's going to come suddenly and quickly. The Lord's going to come. Uh, the Lord Jesus is going to come. And uh, the trumpet's going to sound. And we who are alive and remain are going to be caught up with those um, who've been resurrected. We're going to meet the Lord um, in the air. That event can happen at any moment. And after that happens, you can imagine there's going to be a time of further preparation. I mean, the world's going to be thrown into chaos. People are going to be looking for somebody to bring some stability and security out of all of that. And a, an individual is going to arise who will eventually be the Antichrist, and he's going to make a treaty with the nation of Israel and kind of solve this Middle East uh, problem, this thorn that's been in the side of the world now for many, many decades. And when that takes place and that treaty is signed, Israel is going to enjoy some peace for a period of time. And I think that's when the battle of Gog and Magog is going to take place. Because it says here they're going to be at rest and living securely. Now you can see that the battle of Armageddon is going to be at the end of the tribulation. That's when Christ returns. So the battle of Gog and Magog and Armageddon aren't the same thing. They're, they're two separate battles separated by, by, by several years. But that's how I, I see this taking place is during that time in the beginning of the tribulation. I've got a lot of my friends that are really well-known prophecy preachers, and they believe the battle of Magog Gog and Magog can happen before the tribulation. It may happen very soon. So the timing is kind of the thing that there's probably the most disagreement about. But what we can know for sure is that who's going to come is this Russian-Iranian Islamic alliance 
And they're going to come sometime in the latter years or the last days. And we see the buildup now. Um, Israel is present in the land. They're prosperous in the land. All that remains is for them to be at peace in the land. These nations listed here are forming alliances, and the world wants some kind of Middle East peace deal over there. So the, 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 place, the, the pieces are coming into place. Now, why are these nations going to invade Israel? Well, there's a couple things mentioned. Notice in verse 12, they're going to come to capture spoil. They're going to come to cash in on Israel's wealth. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. Uh, We do know there's been some gargantuan uh, oil and gas reserves found in Israel recently. It could be for that. We don't know why, but they come to cash in. We also see in verse 9, they come to crush Israel. You will go up, you will come like a storm, you'll be like a cloud covering the land. So they're going to come to wipe the Jewish people off the face of the earth. And isn't it interesting today, we're seeing an incredible resurgence in our world of anti-Semitism. In fact, there's just an article in the paper this morning about it, about just a, a hatred for the Jewish people. Have you ever wondered why there's an age-long hatred of the Jewish people? It's been from the beginning. There's never been an age-long hatred of the Irish or the Italians or any other group. And what we know is behind that ultimately is Satan. I mean, Satan's the ultimate anti-Semite. I mean, he knew that this Messiah that was going to come and crush his head would come from uh, the Jewish people, so he tried to keep Jesus from being born and coming. Um, he tried to kill him when he was born through King Herod and ultimately uh, was responsible for him being killed on the cross. And, of course, today he's trying to wipe out the Jewish people because God has promises in the Bible for the Jewish people that have not been fulfilled yet. And if he can wipe them out, then he can thwart the promises of God. So Satan is the one who's ultimately behind energizing all of this. And then I think the third reason they're going to come is just to control the Middle East. And uh, many, many experts that I read uh, that are very well-known experts believe that 2020 could be a key year with Israel and Iran. And, of course, only time will tell. And you say, well, what's going to happen when all this comes down in the future? Well, Dr. Walter Kaiser, a great Old Testament scholar, he says this, this war will be a war unlike any we've seen thus far uh, in history. I mean, it's going to be literally a war, literally of biblical proportions. As God pours down judgment upon these invaders. In fact, if you look in chapter 38 and verse 18 of Ezekiel, God says, It'll come about on that day when Gog comes up against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God that my fury will mount up in my anger, and in my zeal and in my blazing wrath, declare there'll be an earthquake in the land. So there's going to be a devastating earthquake. Notice in verse 21, they're going to call for the sword against each man's brother. It's going to be death by friendly fire, with pestilence. It's talking about plagues and disease. With blood, I'll enter into judgment with him. The end of verse 22 is going to be hailstones, fire, and brimstone like Sodom and Gomorrah. And then verse 23, God says, I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. If you read through the book of Ezekiel, one of the main statements through the book is that they may know that I am the Lord. So God is going to do this in the end times among the nations and also for Israel to show them who he is. And many in Israel will begin to turn uh, to the Lord at that time. Uh, Charles Ryrie in the, the Ryrie Study Bible, I was looking in that this week, and he has a little note down there beneath this, and it says this, 
The twofold purpose of this judgment is that the nations might acknowledge the glory of God and that Israel might know God's grace. So God is going to magnify his glory and his grace even in the midst of this coming time of judgment. Now when you think about what's going on in our world today and, and certainly the, the more, uh, more and more crises this world's going to face, how do we respond in these kinds of situations? What do we do? It's a movie I saw years ago with Tom Cruise. It's called The Edge of Tomorrow. It's a sci-fi thriller where he's this guy in this future army and he goes so far in the movie and then something happens and then all of a sudden he wakes up and he's back at the beginning again and he goes farther and goes a little bit farther each time and it kind of keeps reliving this same event over and over again. And at one scene in the movie, one of the characters asks him, he says, what do we do now? And Tom Cruise's character says, I have no idea. We've never been this far before. (laughs) And that's kind of how we feel sometimes in our world today. We've never been this far before. But of course, God who knows the end from the beginning knows what you and I need to do now. Let me just mention as we close here this morning, four things for you and for me to do in response to what we see in the world today, but to keep in mind as more and more crises begin to proliferate. Here's the first one and the most important one. Receive Jesus Christ. If you've never done so, you need to take Christ to be your Savior. Jesus Christ can come back at any moment. I believe that. He can come back at any time. And you need to be ready because Jesus is coming for those who have come to him. If you haven't come to him, he's not coming for you. You have to come to him and trust in him. Make sure you've come to him in faith and in trust, believing in him. You will never, ever get to heaven without him. The the beautiful good news of the gospel is that God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so we could become the righteousness of God in him. He took my sin. He gives me his righteousness when I believe in him. The Bible says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you're here this morning without Jesus Christ, you need to take him and trust in him to be your savior. You'll never get to heaven without him. If the rapture happens in our lifetime when he comes, he's not coming for you. You'll be left behind. A second thing is we need to realize that God is in control of what's happening. I know that's a kind of a trite statement we hear, but When we read a passage like Ezekiel 38 and 39, God said what's going to happen 2,500 years before it came to pass. And he even tells the end of it what's going to happen before it even begins. Before it even starts, he's already told us how it's going to come out. God's sovereignly in control of this world. In Matthew 24, 6, uh, the day before, a couple days before he died on the cross, Jesus said this, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not frightened. That's the world we're going to live in, I think, increasingly. Wars and rumors of wars. Jesus says, see to it that you're not frightened. Look, Jesus controls all the events of history. He controls all the nations of this world. And just think about this. If Jesus has the whole world in his hands, he has your world in his hands. He's got my world in his hands. Surely if he can control kings and kingdoms and nations... He can control my life and your life. I was reading a book by Robert J. Morgan a while back, and he tells a story about a a pilot named Owen Wilson. He was flying in New Zealand, 
he wanted to do something for one of his friends on his birthday, so he took him up in his small plane. They were flying around the beautiful uh, countryside of New Zealand, and uh, suddenly uh, the, the engine began to sputter, and then it died. And as the plane began quickly losing altitude, they searched for somewhere to land, and they saw a, a mountainside they were going to hit into in front of them. And they both cried out, Lord, help us get over this ledge. And in an amazing way, there's an updraft, and they get over this steep ledge. They barely skim over that ridge, and then they began to pray for God to show them somewhere to land. It's just trees and, and gullies and all kinds of things around, nowhere to land, and they cry out to God. And at the last moment when they're descending, when all hope seems lost, they see this tiny strip of land between two ridges, and they glide into that narrow spot and touch down. And you can imagine both of these men cry out to the Lord and say, Thank you, Lord. But looking up in front of them, they see a big 20-foot sign that says, Jesus is Lord. As it turned out, a Christian retreat center owned this piece of land, which explained the billboard. And of course, the owners ran out to meet these unexpected visitors, literally in the middle of nowhere, and they told them that field was normally filled with livestock, but the animals that day were lined along the edge as if giving them room to land. And then Robert Morgan says this, our world today is experiencing some major instability. The same can be true in our personal lives. We often find ourselves flying into turbulence. Sometimes the engines stall. Things might be so bad we find ourselves bracing for a crash. Things seem hopeless, but whatever the situation, we can discover the incredible truth that Jesus is Lord. It's like a big billboard in front of us. We need to remember those words that Jesus is Lord. He's got the whole world in his hands. So surely he's got your world and my world in his hands as well. A third thing I would say is this. You and I need to remain alert and awake. Bible prophecy is given to change us, not to just entertain us. And it's not given to scare us, but it's given to prepare us. It's not given to make us anxious. It's given to make us alert and aware. It's not given just to satisfy our curiosity, but it's given to shape our character to transform our lives with a, a sense of urgency that God may be ready soon to call us to account. Um, A.W. Tozer, he certainly was not some wild-eyed prophecy person. He's a great theologian. This is what A.W. Tozer said a, a few decades ago. Let us be alert to the season in which we are living. It is the season of the blessed hope. It is imperative that we stay fully alert to the times in which we live. All signs point to this being the season of the blessed hope. All around us, we have the evidence of Jesus' soon return. Each day, our focus should be on the coming one. Now, that's a pretty profound statement. Every day, our focus should be on the coming of Christ. Now, I would ask how many believers probably ever even think about that very often. Yet he says, that should be our focus because, again, it's that focus that changes us. And then Tozer said this, our focus on the blessed hope, talking about the coming of the Lord, is the most important discipline of our spiritual life. Now, if you started asking people, what are the most important disciplines of the spiritual life? I bet you'd go a long time before most people would say, focusing on the blessed hope. Because if you get up every morning and you say, perhaps today could be the day that Jesus comes. It'll change the way you live. There's things you'll do that you wouldn't otherwise do. There's things you won't do that you might have thought about doing. It'll transform your life. It's a critical discipline in our lives to be alert and aware and thinking consciously often about the coming of Jesus Christ. 
And then the final thing I'd remind us of this morning is that you and I need to reach out with the gospel to people around us. Um, I've made two personal commitments this year, two things that, that I believe the Lord wants me to do in light of the urgency of the times in which we live. Um, one of them, I alluded to this last week, if you're here for last week's message, is uh, to be more generous in the times in which we live, to look for more ways to fund the advancement of the gospel. It's a, a personal conviction God's laid upon my heart and Cheryl's heart. But the second one is to witness more. I mean, I've been going through a lot in my own mind lately, thinking about these truths and, and the urgency of the coming of Christ and asking myself, how urgent, though, am I really about telling people that I know who don't know Christ um, about the good news of the gospel? It's something that convicts me a lot in my life. I've been thinking about it, praying about it a lot. Um, and as I read this passage this week, it became a, a burden on me to be praying. And uh, yesterday, on Saturday, uh, Cheryl and I go to this boot camp at a, at a local place to work out. She goes to it several times a week. I just go once, so I'm usually very sore on, the, on Sundays. But there's a young man that leads it. He's about my son's age, uh, my two sons' age, and real nice young guy, and he's helped us a lot there in in the class and there's things about him I've heard him say or things maybe I didn't know if he's a believer so yesterday after the class was over I was talking to him a little bit and I asked him I said "Uh, where did you go to church in the town you grew up in he's he's told me where he grew up and and uh, he said well I went to this certain place I said where do you go here now he said well I'm not really going anywhere that much and so I, I looked at him I said look I I love you and care about you Cheryl I love you and we care about you and we want you to be in heaven I said are you a Christian and he looked at me and he said yes he said I'm saved but then he put his head down really quickly and he said but I'm not living it very much and uh, I said well what can I do to help you and so we began to to talk about um, things that he needed to do to grow as a Christian and um I told him, I said, now look, I'm not going to keep bugging you about this all the time because he knows I'm a preacher and, and once people find that out in those classes, they kind of avoid you if you're a preacher, but anyway. <laughs> um, but he knew that, but I told him, I said, well, I'm not going to bug you about this all the time. And he goes, no. He goes, I, I wish you'd talk to me about it a lot. He goes, I, I need that. I need that encouragement. I need somebody to be helping me with those things. And it was just such an encouragement to me that you know, he responded, well, look, some people we talk to won't. They won't want to hear it. They'll reject us. But you know, who are people that you see? Like I see him every Saturday morning. You know, who's a person that maybe that cuts your hair or that does your nails or, or a person you see regularly? You can just bring up a conversation with them, ask me, are you a Christian? You know, if they don't want to talk about it, then you know, drop the subject, you move on. But I find that a lot of people, if you tell them, look, I love you and I care about you and I want you to be in heaven. And uh, here, here's the good news of the gospel. This is what I believe. And it was moving to me, this young man, I told him I loved him. He told me that back. He said, I, I love you too and I care about you. He had tears in his eyes. People are, they're hungry today to hear something that has meaning and a foundation to it. One other story, and I'll close with this. You know, you and I need to be praying for people in Iran and the Middle East and these parts of the world. We have a lot of brothers and sisters there, and they're trapped in a, in a, in a dark place. Um, as Jay mentioned in one of his sermons a few weeks ago, that uh, the church in Iran, many people think, is the fastest growing church in the world today. Uh, there's protests going on over there right now as we speak. Uh, They'll probably be brutally repressed by the regime there. Uh, But you and I, we're not against the people of Iran. We love them. Um, We pray for them, and I I hope that you and I will do that. Several years ago, I got an opportunity to be on some programs with a man named John Ankerberg. I don't know if a lot of you have heard of him. He does really good work. 
But I was on some programs doing prophecy with uh, myself and a guy named Ed Heinsohn and a friend of mine named Ron Rhodes. We're going to do this whole series of programs. We were there for like three days, and they're, and, and they're doing these. And to kind of encourage us, I think, John Ankerberg took us in his office, and he said, I want you to know the kind of people you're talking to. And he told us that they get more mail, more emails, mail from Iran than any place in the world. And he said that at one point in time, they had so many of them, he used the word a million. And I asked him like three different times, did you say a million? That's how much he said they can't respond to all of it, that people are reaching out. And he said, he showed us a letter that had been translated into English. And he said, this is from a, a woman in Iran, and she has foil on her windows, goes in a back room in her house on a TV, and she watches this, our program back there on this TV. And he said, I want you guys to keep it really simple and clear because that's the kind of people that are listening to what we're doing. And that brought tears to all of our eyes as I thought about that. I've never been able to get that out of our mind. What a privilege it is to be able to, to take this message to people living in those places. And one of the things he said, he said, we get the most response to from programs that are about end-time prophecy. This is from people in Iran. They want to know about where things are headed because they see the hopelessness of where they are and they want hope in Jesus Christ and some kind of hope for the future. So I say all that to simply say that God is at work. God is at work in the nations. God is at work in individual hearts in places you and I could never reach. God is at work all over the world. And it's incumbent upon us in these times in which we live to join God in his work as he gives us the opportunity to do that, um, as we await the coming of Jesus Christ. May God infuse us and energize all of us uh, with a sense of urgency to do that. Well, let's pray together. If you're here again this morning without Christ, come to him now and believe in him and trust in him. He's coming for those who've come to him, so come to him now. Call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. Well, Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace to us that you've called us out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your Son. It's all by your grace. We thank you for it. Father, I pray for myself and for all of us here that you'll give us a sense of urgency and boldness to tell people that we know, that we see on a regular basis who may not know Christ or maybe a believer and need encouragement to reach out to them with a, a, a word from you that can bring hope to their lives. Father, we thank you that you control the world. Thank you that you control our world. Even if it seems out of control today, whatever turbulence we may be facing, the engines may have even stalled, but you control our world. Father, comfort us with that thought today. Father, give us your heart for a lost and hurting world. Help us to live faithfully in the meantime as we await the end time. We pray that Jesus will come soon. In his dear name we pray. Amen.